Hello again, and welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole food plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps that you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Today's conversation is with Valerie True, the director at the University of Guelph Child Care and Learning Center in Guelph, Ontario. As a registered early childhood educator with a Master's of Arts in Leadership, she also teaches in the Bachelor of Applied Science program at the University of Guelph and Guelph-Humber, applying a lens of social and environmental justice to studies of policy, administration, and leadership. Valerie views teaching from early to post-secondary as a political act and does so with a view to provoke radical social transformation towards a post-colonial world. She has spent 20 years working in children's services through post-secondary education, regional government, early intervention, and early learning and child care. Holding a certificate in plant-based nutrition, Valerie is also passionate about transforming our food systems to better human and planetary health and to end oppression. She is also excited to be starting doctoral studies in social justice education at the University of Toronto this fall, and plans to investigate the intersectionality of oppression and how early learning practices, environments, materials, and interactions may inadvertently perpetuate oppression, and the opportunity this provides us to dismantle oppressive systems through our youngest citizens. Valerie, thanks so much for coming on the Plant-Based Canada podcast. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Clint, for having me. Of course. Now, before we get started, I understand you'd like to do a land acknowledgement if you want to take it away. So uh, those of you who know me may have heard some of this information before, but it never hurts to hear it again. Uh, It's very important to me that a land acknowledgement is not just words or a checkbox of items to complete at the start of an event. It would really hurt my heart to think that this moment of acknowledgement and reconciliation was not afforded the attention and consideration it deserves. So I would really like this land acknowledgement to be meaningful and educational for you, but also for me. So I'll start to talk about treaties. Uh, Treaties were actually used between Indigenous nations long before European settlers arrived. Uh, And while treaties represent an agreement and a respectful partnership between peoples and are even constitutionally recognized, unfortunately, they are often betrayed, resulting in the exploitation, assimilation, and even eradication of Indigenous peoples and their cultures through colonialism. I am coming to you from the University of Guelph campus, which is on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Lenapewak, and Wendat peoples. Guelph is within the land protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement, and I hope you will take the time to learn about the traditional territory where you live and work. The Indigenous nations often represented treaties in ways other than with paper documents, which is why you might hear treaties referred to as wampum. For example, the Haudenosaunee practice is to use wampum belts to document treaties. Wampum are beads made from shells. The two-row wampum was created in 1613 to represent an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Dutch settlers at that time. The agreement stated that the Haudenosaunee and Dutch peoples would respect one another and live in peace, and this was represented by two purple lines of wampum running through a row of three white wampum lines. The two purple lines represent the sailboat and the canoe, meaning we will go down the river of life parallel to each other, but never merging. 
The first row of white beads symbolizes friendship, the second row, good mind, and the third row, peace, all together resembling a river. In addition to the Indigenous peoples and the treaties, I also want to acknowledge the land itself and all of life on it. As a settler of privilege, some of the ways that I try to honor the land daily is by treading as lightly as possible on it. I do this through walking to work and through the choices that I make, including what I eat and how I shop. Ultimately, my hope for this land acknowledgement is that it will help us to start today in a good way, which will lead to openness to new ideas, good work, and good deeds. Thank you very much for that, Valerie. It's really important to acknowledge. So to get started, let's get a better understanding of your background. Can you tell me about how you grew up and what led you down the path that you're on today? Yeah, well, um, I guess I, I grew up and spent most of my formative years in London, Ontario, and having a soft but fierce heart when it came to animals. Um, as a young child, I was always writing letters to ambassadors or foreign governments or our own government about injustices, either for humans or for animals. Um, I remember calling into Global News at noon when I was about 12 years old um, to voice my outrage over the Toronto Zoo's plans to euthanize a Siberian tiger named Brum uh, because he had outlived his usefulness to them. Um, and actually getting on the air with uh, Bob McAdory. Um, I'm probably dating myself there. Um, and my mom was actually in the other room watching the news when she realized that she was actually hearing me on the air from another room. Um, so, uh, I mean, I've always been pretty vocal and kindness to animals and speaking out for animals um, and really for any victims of injustice has always been really important to me. Uh, my parents actually lied to me uh, for the first many years of my life when I started asking about, you know, where certain foods came from. And then once I couldn't be lied to anymore or made to eat what I was being served, I went vegetarian when I was about 11. Um, at that young age, I hadn't yet made the connection on the uh, atrocities of the egg and dairy industries. Um, I joined an animal rights group called ARC2, and my parents would drop me off at protests with my little handmade sign, and some kind person, usually an older woman, would stay with me until they picked me up at the end of the protest. Uh, we protested outside, um, like furriers mostly, and uh, but also I remember the uh, one uh, protest in particular that uh, sticks with me was over vivisection and it was at Western University over the ongoing horrendous torture of a specific monkey um, who was well not named but labeled B43. I remember that very just like it was yesterday and it was just also heartbreaking to me and as a child I had this um, you know naive sense of justice that if people only knew uh the truth that they wouldn't take part in all the cruel and unnecessary industries and practices. Um, I think that's still true a little bit to an extent today, um, which is why striking down, you know, egg gag laws is so important or preventing them from passing in the first place. Uh, it's why documentaries like Dominion are responsible for so many people going vegan. Um, but it's really, it's the constant brainwashing and indoctrination that we undergo from the 
time we're born, you know, cartoon cows and pigs, um, depictions of farm animals um, and farms as the, these idyllic pastoral places, uh, rather than the uh, really torture chambers that they are, they, they're all lies. And, uh, you know, being told meat and dairy and eggs are good for us, that we need them to be strong. I mean, I basically grew up at a time when um, animal products were being passed off as health food, um, and they still are to a certain extent. Um, the milk mustache, uh, milk, it does a body good, uh, get cracking. But uh, we know that not only are they not good for us, they're very, very bad for us. Um, uh, and animal products are contributing to um, almost all of the non-communicable chronic diseases, which are actually responsible for 74% of all deaths worldwide. And on top of that, we know that they are destroying our planet. Um, as a parent and as an educator, uh, I'm just in constant despair really over the legacy that we are leaving our children. And the fact that it's made light of or joked about or um, that it's made out to be radical to simply not harm other creatures or the planet is really, um, it's really mind boggling to me. It's, it's pretty shameful. Uh, we should all be ashamed, uh, every parent and educator, particularly early childhood educators for whom caring is part of their profession, uh, should be desperately trying to fix this for children's future health and the health and livability of their planet, really. Uh, we cannot claim to be caring about children while our daily activities, including the choices that we make on their behalf, are so harmful to their health, destroying their planet, and ultimately go against their innate compassionate nature. Uh, you know, a planet with scarce resources is not a safe or happy place. It's very scary and we should, we should all really be scared for our children or for their future. So sorry to have gone to such a dark place. <laughs> No, that's very interesting. I it's it's so you you're talking about you know coming to it from an animal rights activist perspective in the beginning, but then as you just laid out toward the end, you kind of you you saw that the way that we treat animals impacts the the planet. It impacts our health. So you you have all of these other perspectives that you're coming from. You put them together yeah. because they all make sense. I wanted to ask you, um, what made you go into early childhood education? Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think very few of us actually go into the profession we see ourselves going into either as children or when we even start university. But I actually started out with intentions to become a veterinarian. I moved my family to Guelph to attend the University of Guelph in my early 20s. And I soon realized how agriculturally focused the program was. And I simply was not going to be able to complete it based on my convictions and my principles. So while I was expecting my second son, I actually had my first son at a very young age, I was 17. And while I was expecting my second son and attending university, I actually started volunteering in the community. Um, I volunteered at the Teenage Parents Program uh, through the Y. And then I started to work, I started a work interview clothing bank for abused women in Guelph. And I just realized that I could also make a difference um, working in human services too. So feeling like um, the door to working with animals was closed to me, I changed my focus and ended up completing a degree with studies in psychology and a minor in family and child studies, and then went on to um, get a resource teacher certificate so I could support children and families with special needs. 
Um, I've worked in child welfare, in early intervention services, in regional government overseeing like children's services and childcare. Um, I now teach at the University of Guelph Humber in early childhood studies. And I'm also the director of the University of Guelph Child Care and Learning Center, which is a lab school where we hold the third year practicum in the Bachelor of Applied Science Child Youth and Family Program. And I'm super excited to be starting doctoral studies at the University of Toronto in social justice education this fall. You mentioned in your first answer that when you were 11 was when you made the change to become vegetarian. So obviously you've been doing this for a long time, but when did diet and nutrition, specifically plant-based eating, enter the picture for you in terms of your career? Yeah, well, I grew up figure skating, so I was an athlete and health and fitness were always really important to me. And then as a vegetarian, I guess I just paid closer attention to nutrition because I became vegetarian at a time when there was just a lot of, oh, combining things and, you know, it's all been debunked now, but, um, you know, there was just a lot of uh, attention that I thought I needed to pay to nutrition. Um, but it was really as a mom that I began to connect nutrition to long-term health outcomes and was just always looking for information to ensure that I was giving my kids uh, the best possible start in life. And as a vegetarian mom, particularly a young vegetarian mom, I always felt pressure to justify my decision and to prove that my kids were healthy. So, you know, fast forward 20, more than 20 years, um, and we have this increasingly diseased population and a dying planet, both of which disproportionately affect racialized and impoverished people. And my interest in leaving a just, fair and livable planet just kind of coalesced around my interest in animal rights and animal welfare, which are all inextricably linked to human rights and well-being. So finally, after about 37 years as a vegetarian, I went vegan three years ago. I did it for the animals unapologetically. I mean, if someone said to you, you could eat nutritious, delicious food affordably, preventing needless suffering and environmental degradation, wouldn't you do that? And I can honestly say that it is the best decision that I've ever made. And we have never eaten better, uh, uh, more delicious food than we have since going vegan as a family. Um, we enjoy every morsel knowing that it isn't causing harm. It isn't destroying the planet. It isn't causing suffering. And it's just delicious. Like there's just um, so much great food out there. Yeah, for sure. I, I have to say when I made the change too, I, I ended up eating more variety of things, things I never had considered before. So it really broadened my horizons as well. When did you consider implementing a plant-based a plant-based menu at the child care center? And how did that unfold for you? Okay, so this is a long answer, um, a long story, I suppose. So um, I hope you're ready. Uh, I guess uh, when I started at the CCLC in 2016, we had what I would consider a pretty standard childcare menu, um, though it was definitely better than most. Uh, it still included things like goldfish crackers and applesauce and lots of cheese and milk and meats and fish and frittatas and things like that. Um, but of course, anytime you start a new position, especially in a leadership role, um, you know, you really have to focus on building relationships and trust, um, sharing decision making and, you know, giving autonomy and developing a shared vision for the team um, and for the community. So that was where my focus lay at first for the first year or two. 
And then I was able to start looking more at the operational side of things um, to see if our practices were consistent with our stated vision and values. So things like the kitchen operations and the menu um, were then able to be looked at a little bit more closely. But my beliefs aside, it's important to understand that our transition to a plant-based menu at the CCLC was the culmination of so many issues and considerations over years. And there has just been no, um, it's just nothing but good reasons to go plant-based. There, there's so many reasons. Um, so our kitchen staff at the CCLC, as I'm sure most child care's experience, were finding themselves preparing numerous iterations of every meal every day to accommodate so many um, diets and food sensitivities, um, allergies, including life-threatening uh, anaphylaxis. So as dietary needs were diversifying, we noticed a trend, which was an increasing number of children with sensitivities or allergies to milk, um, as well as anaphylactic allergies to eggs and dairy. And at the time when meat was still being served, uh, even ham and pork um, at the CCLC, uh, many of the Muslim families would elect for their children to have the vegetarian option each day as a way to ensure that anything that they were fed would be halal friendly. So with the number of vegetarian children, um, the occasional vegan child at the CCLC, um, Muslim families, it just quickly became apparent that as animal products were reduced, um, more children could be served the meal from an efficiency point of view. So therefore, our initial considerations to improve our efficiency at the CCLC um, in the kitchen started with a shift to halal meat. Then it moved to the elimination of all pork products. And soon it resulted in the overall gradual reduction in all meat on the menu. So we essentially went vegetarian, um, kind of under the radar without a lot of uh, notice. Uh, but our journey towards like more efficiency was still not complete because as I mentioned, like as the menu at the CCLC moved towards that vegetarian um, side, the trend in allergies from nuts to eggs and dairy, um, which had been shifting over many years actually became more glaring. So now that we were no longer having to prepare all these, you know, various meat free or vegan meals, um, or uh, vegetarian meals, um, the bulk of our dietary co considerations and restrictions that were being accommodated in the kitchen were now related to dairy and eggs, um, including life-threatening anaphylaxis. Um, so that highlighted another issue for us, which was the disparity with which um, we treated nut anaphylaxis compared to that of dairy and eggs. So why was the CCLC a nut-free facility, but not an egg and dairy-free facility when the bulk of our um, anaphylactic allergies were to dairy and egg? So this soon became an issue of inclusion for us as well, um, as we were actually faced with having to have children with anaphylactic dairy allergies sitting at separate tables from their milk drinking peers to keep them safe from spills or accidental exposure. So we realized that this could all be addressed through taking a universal design approach to menu planning. And if you're not, or the listeners are not familiar with the term universal design, it's really the design and composition of an environment 
that um, so that it can be accessed, um, understood, and, and utilized uh, to the greatest extent possible by all people, regardless of their needs. Um, it's simply a best practice when it comes to accessibility and inclusion. So we thought, why not apply that approach to our menu planning? Um, similarly, at the CCLC, uh, we've also been concerned about sustainability. So the sustainability of our center's been a consideration for us for some time. And our menu has um, been only one of the many ways that we've been addressing this. So we've made numerous changes to our practices over the years, um, some of which will probably only make sense to any listeners who might be from the childcare world. But um, some of those changes have included things like eliminating the use of glitter, right? Why are we using glitter? Glitter was heavily used um, and continues to be in childcare for crafts and things like that. Um, so we eliminated the use of glitter. We um, use recycled and donated materials as much as possible for any art explorations. Um, we've transitioned uh, many of our learning materials to predominantly uh, natural materials or real objects just to reduce you know, the need for getting more materials and buying plastic and things like that. Um, we implemented classroom sorting of waste. So even the youngest children are sorting their, their classroom waste. Um, we planted a community garden for use by the kitchen. And um, we also compost the kitchen waste, uh, especially now that it's completely animal product free. And we use that in our community garden. Uh, we've reduced and eliminated now animal products from the kitchen menu and uh, eliminating the use of single use plastic, which is also uh, pretty big in childcare. And then uh, supporting things like Meal Care Guelph um, and the on campus student food bank with donations of any extra food uh, from the center kitchen. So, taking these kinds of measures to reduce our ecological footprint at the CCLC has just been a natural extension of our caring for children by caring for their planet. And then regarding nutrition, um, fortunately, we live in Canada where we now have one of the most science-based food guides in the world. Uh, the most significant change, of course, was the removal of dairy as a food group in 2019. And if you look very closely, you may see a wee piece of cheese or something within the protein quadrant of the plate on the food guide. Um, but it's really um, predominantly plant-based. So you'll also notice that the protein quadrant of the plate actually includes largely plant-based sources of protein like nuts and seeds as well. Um, so the dietary guidelines now encourage Canadians to get their proteins from plants more often, as well as consuming water as a beverage. Um, so we should be very proud of this food guide as Canadians. And I mean, if you look at it, you'll see that it really is a predominantly plant-based food guide. Um, in fact, I was fortunate to attend a meeting with the director of um, health promotion for Health Canada and one of the people behind the food guide and uh, what he was proud to share was that this uh, food guide is what you get when you remove lobbying and the influence of industry from the process of developing dietary guidelines. So he explained that all of the research used in the development of the 2019 food guide was vetted to ensure that it was not produced by any specific industry. Um, and it's really important to understand that 
This is not how it has been done in the past. The development of previous food guides and of dietary guidelines around the world still um, not only use research conducted by specific industries, but are often themselves funded by lobby groups or financed by lobby groups such as the dairy farmers or the pork and poultry producers. Um, so the 2019 food guide was very exciting to me, um, especially with the journey we've been on at the CCLC towards this plant-based menu over several years. And so contacting public health was really the first step that we were taking to formalize that transition. So, you know, 2019 food guide in hand, I um, went to public health and expected approval of our transition or um, to be pretty straightforward and uh, maybe even encouraged. Um, and as nutrition has been a top priority um, for us at the CCLC, we also saw this as an exciting opportunity to um, you know, further improve the nutrition of our menu, um, to work with a local public health dietitian. Um, however, despite the theoretical support of Canada's food guide, uh, it was really clear that the public health units had not been supported um, with the tools to operationalize the new guidelines in the programs and settings within their jurisdictions. So ultimately we were told that public health was still working off the old food guide and basing all childcare nutrition requirements still on food groups. So despite dairy being the most problematic of the foods at the CCLC from a safety, efficiency, waste and environmental perspective, um, despite it no longer constituting a food group in and of itself, uh, despite the negative uh, long-term health outcomes that we know about dairy, the removal of milk from our menu uh, actually became the most challenging obstacle to a fully plant-based menu for us. Um, and we learned that this has mostly to do with fortification practices in Canada. For example, milk and dairy products are the main products that are fortified with vitamin D, which we know is a challenge to get enough of on any diet, and particularly in the Northern Hemisphere where we have less exposure to the sun. So, so now because dairy was um, still a food group in the old food guide and because public health was still using that model, uh, it was starting to seem uh, a bit encouraging like this or discouraging that because it felt like this was going to be an impasse towards our process towards a plant-based menu at the CCLC. Um, so I proposed to our public health dietitian that we would undertake a comprehensive nutritional analysis of a plant-based menu to meet specific nutrient requirements, not food group requirements. And this process would provide us with a far more meaningful breakdown of the actual nutrient density at a level that cannot be achieved through an approach based on food groups alone. So public health agreed and uh, off we went. Fortunately, we had a wonderful nutrition practicum student, Abby, uh, who was working with us and could, could support us with the nutritional analysis. So the, our, what governs us in childcare is the Child Care and Early Years Act. So the Child Care and Early Years Act states that children that are in attendance in childcare for six hours or more per day must be provided with um, two snacks and one meal daily. Um, however, the Ontario Dietitians in Public Health Practical Guide 
for child care providers further specifies that this should account for at least 50% of children's daily nutrition. So this was our starting point for our nutritional analysis. And what we discovered from the nutritional analysis was that um, we weren't just meeting nutrition requirements, we were greatly exceeding them in all nutrients except vitamin D. And that's because we had hoped to fully implement the food guide by serving um, water as the beverage. But in order to meet those vitamin D requirements, we did have to add a plant-based, a fortified plant-based milk, um, just as we had had dairy milk before, which was likely the greatest source of vitamin D to, to, due to it being fortified. And once we made that addition of the plant-based milk, um, our menus were greatly exceeding in all nutrients. Um, but I think the most unexpected outcome of our transition to a plant-based menu was actually the reduced cost. So it was never our expectation that we would be able to reduce our costs through a plant-based menu. Um, in fact, we were committed to the transition to improve safety and efficiency, inclusion, um, nutrition, sustainability, as well as so many other considerations. And we fully expected these benefits to come at a premium. Um, and the use of high quality products from local businesses uh, made the cost savings really even more unexpected. So to better quantify the financial impact of our plant-based menu, the expenditures from September to December 2019 were compared to the same period in 2020. And it revealed about a nine and a half percent savings year over year. And keep in mind that this savings was the continuation of a trend of food cost reductions over the years that we had been reducing animal products from the menu. So a center who is still serving like a traditional menu, including all animal products would likely experience an even greater savings. And in fact, that savings was likely significantly, significantly greater for us as well um, than it appeared because the calculated savings did not take into account rising food prices year over year, or that huge, anyone who's gone vegan will know what I'm talking about, that huge initial purchase of uh, food, of dry goods and all of those things that you need um, in a plant-based kitchen. Um, and some of which uh, those items are still in inventory months later. So likely a much greater savings than, than what we were able to calculate. And I should know, before we move on that just as um, individuals are being called upon to acknowledge their privilege uh, it's really important for me to recognize that the cclc is a space of privilege um, from our resources on a university campus to the relative affluence um, of the families that we serve however all children are entitled to the best possible start in life as well as a healthy body and healthy planet in the future and uh, I believe the findings of our budgetary analysis and the multitude of operational reason, reasons to go plant-based demonstrate that these benefits are not only accessible, but I think essential to all early learning programs and all children. So I hope that we're laying the groundwork for regulatory changes that support implementation of Canada's dietary guidelines in early learning programs and maybe in other institutions engaged in food service, like long-term care and things like that. Um, perhaps some changes to fortification requirements. And I hope that listeners 
that parents and childcare providers will consider a plant-based menu to support the health of the planet and the children in their care. That's kind of our, our story. There are so many takeaways from that I find <laughs> so interesting. First, yeah. what you just ended with was the cost. I, I had no idea that would be the case. That's very interesting because oftentimes that's something that's kind of levied against a plant-based diet that, you know, it's very ultra expensive. And, and I do, I understand the, um, uh, the privilege aspect that comes into play, but also it, uh, earlier in, in your answer, you, you mentioned the allergies. That's something that I never considered. And you're right. I think there's so much emphasis on the nut allergies. We don't really hear so much about the egg and the dairy, but those are the more common ones. Yeah. And I can tell you, we actually now, and for the last couple of years have no nut anaphylaxis. And so we actually, we serve almond milk, um, <laughs> as one of our beverages. So who knew, right? Like that yeah. it's kind of unheard of people, you know, I can sit at my desk and eat nuts if I want. It's really, um, really been quite transformational. I think that came from the changes that were discovered, a uh, a few years ago that we're starting to see in this generation, which was, you know, um, when I was young and, and parenting, we were told not to serve our children, not to eat peanut butter or peanuts while we were pregnant, not to serve it to our children before they were three. And that was actually the, the complete opposite to the advice we should have been given. And uh, so now that we're no longer giving that advice to parents, we're simply not seeing nut allergies. That's amazing. Yeah. So I understand that you recently held a, a webinar for the Canadian Nutrition Society on the case for a plant-based diet menu in childcare. Can you tell me how that went and can you walk me through the presentation that you gave? Yeah, I, I kind of feel like I just walked you through a lot of it because um, mostly what people wanted to know is like, how did we do it? Why did we do it? Um, so we did just cover a lot of it, but essentially I took participants through the background regarding um, the 2019 food guide and the numerous international reports recommending plant-based diets to prevent the environmental and climate disaster that we are facing. So there are many reports supporting that. Um, I reviewed that. I reviewed the many reasons to go plant-based in childcare, which I've already talked about, as well as the logistics of making that change. So things like communicating to families, training staff, um, we actually had over 600 people register to attend that webinar back in February and over 300 attended live. So it was an extremely well attended. Clearly there's interest um, in this area. Uh, so yeah, it was a very well attended webinar. Yeah. Sounds like a big hit. And because of that, you've got childcare centers and other regions now reaching out to you. Yeah. Um, in the days uh, immediately following, actually hours immediately following that webinar, um, we've had other centers reach out to, to us. In fact, one of them uh, we supported with their transition and provided, uh, they, they've developed their own menu, but we provided them with you know, some background of what we went through. We've provided nutritional analysis as well. And uh, they've just implemented their own fully plant-based menu a couple of weeks ago. So there's another center here in Ontario that's done this. Um, we've been... Uh, contacted by other centers, as well as by, um, I've been contacted by public health dietitians who were attending that webinar from all over Canada, who are interested in hearing about our journey and our nutritional analysis so that they can support the centers that they support with similar information. 
So it's very exciting. We've discovered some other centers from around the world as well, including the UK and Australia. Not very many, but there's a few of us. Um, so we have also joined an international plant-based childcare group to share resources and promote plant-based menus and childcare. And actually one of the plant-based uh, centers in the UK has recently worked with a researcher to complete an impact report, a very, very shiny uh, report that uh, is an impact report on their ecological impact of going plant-based. Um, so I can share that report with you. Um, I can provide you with a link. I don't know if you have the, if you're able to provide that for listeners as well. Absolutely, we can we can link that in the show notes for Great. listeners. So so as you've just alluded to, you know, plant-based eating is really picking up steam. It's becoming more popular topic in recent years, and there's more learning programs around the world that are adopting plant-based menus. More studies showcasing its benefits. Uh, what are you seeing firsthand at your center? Yeah, so um, honestly, the transition to a plant-based menu, uh, I was a little nervous about. I like flying under the radar. It's how I get stuff done. As you know, I'm at the University of Guelph. It's an agricultural university. So I really wasn't sure how this would be received. Um, I treated it as an operational decision. I already laid out the multitude of reasons for going plant-based. And so I was ready to make this operational decision because I had so much information supporting it. Um, but honestly, our transition to a plant-based menu was actually quite well received by our families um, and the university. So of 120 families, only um, maybe three or four, it feels like much more because you know how they stand out in your mind. <laughs> um, only three or four really had any uh, questions or concerns about it. But what I see in general is still very concerning. So unfortunately, parents get the bulk of their nutrition advice from their family doctor, uh, who will likely have gotten no more than a few hours of training and education in nutrition. And also, unfortunately, many family doctors are themselves not necessarily healthy or practicing healthy nutrition. Um, I'm especially concerned with um, like the, the level of growth monitoring and percentiles being followed. Um, like as an example, I have parents who are very small themselves uh, who were trying to follow a ridiculous diet for their child, um, including over five cups of whole cow's milk per day for a toddler. Um, because they'd been recommended this because the child was on the smaller side. Well, the parents are extremely small themselves. Um, I just have such a strong reaction to this kind of thing. Like to serve a human child that much of a lactation product of a bovine animal meant to blow a 35 pound calf up to a 2000 pound steer is just beyond reckless, it's short-sighted. The fact um, is that all the good, good nutrients that are in animal products that our bodies need are, are also able to be acquired on a plant-based diet um, without all those negative health implications. So it would be, I mean, in my opinion, it would be like injecting vitamins into a cigarette and telling us we should smoke to get our vitamins. It's, it's just incredibly short-sighted it's incredibly cavalier with children's long-term health. Um, and unfortunately, I see that a lot um, in healthcare practitioners, even dietitians, um, is this concern for meeting like immediate targets, like a, a dietitian or a doctor might 
you know, have the list of nutrients that they want to hit. And it doesn't matter how they get them. All they're concerned with is that they check them off um, without consideration for their long-term health outcomes. It's really just like passing the healthcare buck down the road. And uh, this child is, you know, checking all the boxes. Therefore, they've done their job. Never mind that they will likely develop heart disease or type 2 diabetes or, you know, even cancer. The other concern that I have is with like the growth percentiles, which is similar to what I talked about in terms of, you know, that intensive growth monitoring. Um, it's just so important to take everything in context. Uh, for instance, I have had in the past a South Asian family, also very small on the slighter side, um, very concerned that their toddler was around the 20th percentile. Well, that means that toddler is heavier than about 20% of children their age. And if the parents aren't larger than, you know, most adults, then why would we expect their child to be larger than most children? Um, and are those percentiles reflective of also, you know, perhaps a standard American or, you know, standard North American diet, which we know to be unhealthy. We know we're all larger than we have been in past generations. So, yeah, unfortunately, um, the go-to for all these issues is to increase their meat and dairy. Um, and it just makes me very sad for children whose parents are trying to do what's best for them and are likely making them sick. Yeah, that sounds very frustrating. And you mentioned like taking everything in context. I think it's also important to to mention that, you know, you mentioned like the standard American diet and they base a lot of their macronutrients off of the RDAs, you know, the RDA for protein is actually in, in, in the States, it's two standard deviations up. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, that's not necessarily for everybody, but that's what everybody is aiming for. That's right. um, so, and people don't really, again, it's context. Uh, parents might not be aware. So it's not necessarily that the parents are, they just don't know. And then the people that they're going for, for that information, like you mentioned, might not have the training to give that type of advice out. So you've clearly, you know, you've, you've knocked off all of the, the health and nutrition side of things, but in the beginning, you kind of uh, mentioned there's all these other considerations too, um, the environment being one. So why is it so important to understand where our food comes from and how our food systems work for children to learn these things? Yeah, I mean, it's part of such a, a bigger picture, right? It's, this is actually a huge question with a very multifaceted and complex answer that I don't know if I can do justice today. Um, but I'll try. It's, it's really why I'm embarking on these studies because of my interest in, um, in the intersectionality of oppression. Um, including speciesism, and looking at that and how we in early learning could be inadvertently, certainly unintentionally, um, uh, reinforcing and perpetuating oppression through our language, through um, our materials, our reading materials, the environments that we set up, the songs that we sing, everything that we do as children if you um, really stop and look at it, how much of that is reinforcing oppressive messages. And, and as concerning as that is, it's also really exciting because I think there's a huge opportunity here to really dismantle oppression, starting with our very youngest citizens. So that is um, why I'm looking into studying this. As far as an answer to your question now, I mean, 
what's on our mind right now, right, is um, Indigenous uh, children. So to start with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission really calls upon all of us as settlers to take steps towards reconciliation. And decolonization is an important part of the process of reconciliation. And I have the privilege and honor to be able to connect regularly with an Indigenous elder who has been able to support our work of decolonizing and ensuring Indigenous perspectives are incorporated into our daily work with children. But it's really interesting that most people see plant-based diets or veganism as diametrically opposed to Indigenous perspectives. Yet, um, as explained by Margaret Robinson, and I will not even begin to, um, to suggest that I can speak for Indigenous people, so I'm going to um, defer to Margaret Robinson, who is an Indigenous scholar at Dalhousie University. They're actually quite aligned, veganism, plant-based diets, and uh, Indigenous perspectives. What is especially interesting is that it is the practice of animal agriculture and certainly industrial animal agriculture and factory farming that is in direct opposition to any form of indigenous wisdom whatsoever. So, um, you know, one act of decolonizing can be taking animal agriculture out of the, um, uh, off the menu. Uh, so an example of that alignment also between plant-based eating or veganism and indigenous wisdom is the seventh generation principle which is really just based on an ancient Haudenosaunee philosophy that the decisions we make today should result in a sustainable world seven generations into the future. And I, I don't think most of us can say that that is the case and certainly not in um, what we're eating and, and feeding our children. Another example is the value of subsistence. So this really just refers to not taking more than what you need, which is consistent with plant-based diets as they use a fraction of the resources of animal-based diets. And this is true even of the most resource-intensive plant-based diets. So um, from an ethical perspective, plant-based diets and veganism are much more closely aligned with indigenous wisdom than animal agriculture as well. In fact, indigenous values greatly overlap in this area uh, because Indigenous beliefs grant personhood to all of nature and members of the animal kingdom. So, yeah, it's just a very big question. But um, for us right now, it's uh, our focus has definitely been on decolonization. And we see our plant-based menu as part of that. Um, we're not exposing children to it. We're not, um, you know, that very first exposure children have to othering is when we say we love this animal and we eat this animal. That's a very arbitrary thing that we do. And it's the first exposure children get to othering. Um, and so we are not taking part in that here. So I'm really happy about that. But um, it, yeah, it's, it's a very big and complex uh, issue. But um, I do think that a plant-based menu is the first start to some of those conversations. So in terms of Indigenous perspectives and, and learning about their cultures. Um, can you tell me why you think it might be important for children or kids at a young age to be exposed to, to those cultures and per perspectives and particularly how that all comes into play uh, involving what goes onto our dinner tables? Yeah, it's, um, it's really, I think, about charting a better course for humanity. Um, 
the indigenous perspectives and some of those um, philosophies that I mentioned, you know, the seventh, gen seventh generation principle, um, values of subsistence and, um, you know, granting personhood to nature and uh, those kind of things, all hopefully if, if we can incorporate those into how we conduct ourselves and how we, um, the choices that we make daily and what we purchase, what we eat, how we get around, um, that hopefully we can do better. Um, and hopefully we can raise a generation who um, will do better than we have done. Uh, I mean, surely we can do better than this. We are in a global pandemic, a climate crisis, mass extinction, loss of biodiversity, the prospect of fishless oceans, the ongoing discovery of buried children. These are all connected, right? Like, I mean, there are, few things more colonial than animal agriculture and the impacts of animal agriculture are disproportionately felt by the world's most vulnerable and marginalized people. So it, it's imperative that we um, teach these philosophies to our children. Now, before I let you go, I want to ask you a question that I, that I oftentimes ask most of our guests and it's practical steps, uh, what people can take away from, from this interview. Um, we focus a lot in the beginning on on kids and and, and plant based. So, can you, for any parents listening, can you tell me maybe they want to gear their children toward more of a plant based diet, or and they're having some trouble because, as I'm sure you know, kids can be picky. What are some starter points that you can give them to get the ball moving? Yeah. Oh. Um, well, uh, I can think of some of the things that we've implemented here and some of our practices. You know, we're not just experts in early childhood development. We are also um, pretty expert at feeding children. And so positive communication around food is really important. Giving as much power to children as possible is really important at mealtimes. Um, so there are a lot of great uh, books on that subject, which I will um, provide you with the links for so that you can share those. But, um, you know, not engaging in power struggles and actually not, um, we don't even use the term picky eater and we don't use the, um, the words like they don't like this or they don't like that because we know that children can take up to 15 times being offered something before they realize that they do like it. Um, so when we offer something to a child once and they refuse it uh, to suggest that they don't like it, um, they internalize that, they hear that, they, they make that so. So, um, so we don't want to use that kind of language around children when it comes to food. Um, so positive communication, no power struggles around food. And um, really, if, if parents are interested in feeding their children a plant-based um, diet, then I would say that parents should feed their children a plant-based diet um, because you're the parents and um, it's going to benefit them in the long run. And um, in terms of doing that in the healthiest way possible, um, I think you're already off to a good start by having choosing a plant-based diet for your child, but I would highly recommend uh, consulting with a plant-based dietitian. Um, I, I really stress that it should be a plant-based dietitian because uh, as I mentioned, uh, 
yeah, there just can be some short-sightedness and not a lot of knowledge, even among dietitians, about plant-based diets and especially for children. So I would recommend starting with plant-based dietitian. Um, and the other thing that um, is really helpful are these um, menu and uh, meal analysis programs. We used um, a program to do the nutritional analysis of our menu uh, that is actually quite costly and it's a subscription service and we have it through the University of Guelph because we have a nutrition department here. But there have to be other ones out there. I think there's like MyFitnessPal and there was another one that I found recently. But searching for like a meal or menu nutrition analysis program that if you're really interested in, in breaking things down, then I would um, encourage that as well. I really uh, appreciate what you said about um, when you're when you're having kids try new foods and if yeah. you know they they don't like it, not saying necessarily they don't like it because I feel like I might have been one of those kids who at a young age tried broccoli or something and then got it was stig stigmatized in my head that I don't like this because then it was That's talked right. about forever. It's very interesting. I, I think we did it. We, we, this, this has been a very interesting interview. We really awesome. touched on a lot of wide ranging topics and I'd love to again, appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on, but I'd, I'd also love in the future, maybe we can come back and do something else about touch more on intersection. Yeah. I really hope to have more to talk about that area soon. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so much. This podcast featured royalty free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org, and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.